Welcome to Poetry Lectures, a series of lectures by poets, scholars, and educators presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, we'll hear two poets read from their work, Blas Falconer and Gina Franco. This program took place at the Art Institute of Chicago in January 2008. The program featured four Latino poets and was part of American Perspectives, a collaboration of the Art Institute, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and the Poetry Foundation. Here is Steve Young, Program Director of the Poetry Foundation, to introduce the first poet, Blas Falconer. Blas Falconer is the author of The Perfect Hour and A Question of Gravity and Light from the University of Arizona Press. His work has appeared in numerous literary journals, including Indiana Review, Green Mountains Review, Cimarron Review, Another Chicago Magazine, and Third Coast. He earned his MFA from the University of Maryland and a doctorate in English from the University of Houston. Since 2003, he's taught at Austin Peay State University in Clarksville, Tennessee, where he also edits is poetry editor of Zone 3. Please welcome Blas Falconer. Um, I'd like to echo what the others have said. Thank you very much for coming, and thank you for having us. This is a wonderful series, and it's an honor to be a part of it. I'm going to read, if I have time, um, six poems, and... Um, I want to give us, I'm going to read them from the book, Question of Gravity and Light, and hopefully I can give a sense of the arc, an abbreviated uh, version of the book itself. Um, the first poem is titled Dead Reckoning, and it's actually the first poem in the book. And um, it was inspired by um, these ferry trips that I would take from Vieques to Puerto Rico when I stayed there one summer with a family friend. And it became kind of a recurring um, metaphor for the book. Dead reckoning. The morning woke up dark and tired. Horses walked in figure eights beneath the trees. The sky had crawled south, southwest, all night. The ferry left at six. Bells marked the hour, and everyone was counting. You shuffled on. You took what you could carry. A couple leaned against the rail, kissed his hand up her shirt, while others looked ahead. You thought, the statue of St. Christopher, the wooden boy in his arms, the bone encased in glass. The sea was calm. You thought you saw the lights. They had said, blue houses on the mountainside. They had said, on every roof, tins to catch the rain. You thought the boat would take you there. Um, the second poem I want to read is entitled The Given Account, and it's based on um, a little bit of Puerto Rican history. It's based on the uh, first documented murder on the island, and um, the story goes something like this. Uh, after the natives, the Tainos, a peaceful tribe in Puerto Rico, um, were enslaved by the Spanish, they um, decided that they needed to see if they were immortal or not. Um, they were the sons of God, right? So um, they thought, well, let's, let's see if they can die. And so they picked somebody. His name was Diego Salcedo, and they killed him, and it was based on that. And I've said this before, it's also a love poem. So, anyway. The Given Account, Puerto Rico, 1510. 
They said they were gods, and we believed. They crossed uncrossable seas, after all, and ships with sails like wings. But Salcedo is dead. Pacing river shallows, turning rocks, sifting sand for flecks of gold, he cut his foot on stone or shell, sending braids of blood downstream. Overhead, wind shook trees so leaves and light spilled in, catching a school of fish, a silver shimmer. I was there. Kneeling on the bank, I dressed his wound, pressing strips of cloth to stop the flood. But red spots seeped through the weave, my fingers wet with blood, his blood, no different from mine. He winced, his face paled by pain, but nothing, nothing changed. No dove, no cloud, no beam of light, and he a god or son of God? I, who came to drink, struck dumb by one thought, they bleed, they die, led him back into the pool and pushed his head below. His arms thrashed, legs kicked, lungs inhaled, mouths of water. He stopped. Three days I stayed to see him stir, but he, not strongest, weakest, or cruelest of them, did not move. I pulled him out. He hung wet and limp and heavy in my arms. This man, this man, almost too much to bear. I decided to read this poem because of Francisco's poem where he heard a bit of language and had an instant memory. And um, that's what this poem is about as well. The book is dedicated to my grandmother who um, um, was a very spirited woman and probably um, is the one who inspired me to write poetry. So, Oh, there's one reference to changos, which are like magpies. And this is in three parts. And though we know it does no good. All morning, changos cross the yard. Otherwise, a lizard on the branch, his throat a red balloon. And at the bottom of the hill, a boy. Surely the bus has come and gone. This has nothing to do with her. Meanwhile, the clouds won't give, the roosters won't stop crying. Someone says, sirena, and you know the word from the story she told slowly, without anger. Why my skin, lifting her sleeve, look, a finger in the air to say, listen. Then pointing out the window, over there for hours in the sun, where she'd swim. They said, you'll grow fins and won't come back which is what it means, which is what happened. From shore, they saw her sink, a girl. What does it matter now if her dress hung on a branch or bloomed about her? And who is left to say? She lies on a bed across the sea. This was well before the pier was built or washed away plank by plank. 
the wind. You can almost hear the wind. They must have called her name. They must have called and called her name. Not there. The sun is everywhere, but my neighbor doesn't mind. She kneels in the flower bed, a floppy hat, a small shovel in her gloved hand. When she stops, she leans in the door to catch her breath, her head bare and bald. Once, my mother held her breast to show us where they cut the tenderness away. She sank into a pillow and fell asleep, but I looked around the room for something that wasn't there, which is what she wanted us to see, the not there, a black star stitched over the heart. Like the bird that broke her neck against the window, her wings green and iridescent were beautiful and useless. The joints moved like the links of a chain, a bracelet or necklace draped across my fingertips and bile spilled from her beak. Until then, I thought she might live. I often know when the dog is at the door, before he barks, and when I call, my mother always says, I was thinking of you. At dusk, the neighbor's husband waters the ground beneath the blossoms, but he doesn't do it for them. A dark grows over the street as it begins to rain, as it begins to pool and flood. Another day ends. Every morning, down the hill, the hammers bang for hours and treetops sway. Soon enough, we'll see what they've been building all along. I think I'm coming close to the 15 minutes, so I'm just going to read um, one more poem. The Battle of Nashville. I live in this great, I'll tell a little story. I live in this great house. Um, it's on the top of this hill in this neighborhood. It's kind of dangerous, but has a lot of wonderful character, a lot of character. And um, the man who built the house um, did demolition in the city of Nashville. So he built it from the scraps he could save from, from other houses. And so it looks kind of like an Escher drawing because there are stairs going nowhere, and I guess he just would run out of materials. It's completely not up to code, you know. I, I can't believe somehow we were able to buy it. But we love this place. The Battle of Nashville. Oh, and it's on this very big hill, which would surprise anybody that it's even there, because it's so high. The Battle of Nashville. Snow gives the sky a new dimension depth, a soft glow, as if the air lit the yard, which slopes to the city, which shimmers. The river is always moving, but the atrium on fifth, the crests where blacks locked arms and would not budge. A plow takes the hill, where cars line up in rows and half-built lofts replace the houses. The man who built our house built diesel engines and kept the trucks he couldn't fix. His daughters sold it all, except the how-to books, 
the shop fan he left in the attic. We are not brave, but we find each other in bed at night, your hand or my hand reaching out. In the morning, you take the trash, I make the coffee. Nearby, battles were fought, and men whose wives waited for them died. If soldiers held the highest ground, one stood here. If there is one, there is at least one more. Standing shoulder to shoulder, they share a blanket as snow settles in the trees. I think they are afraid. I think this is love. Thank you very much. That was Blas Falconer. The next poet is Gina Franco. To introduce her here once again is Steve Young. Gina Franco's collection of poems, The Keepsake Storm, was published by the University of Arizona Press in 2004. Her work appears in numerous journals and anthologies, among them Border Senses, Copper Nickel Fence, Black Warrior Review, The Georgia Review, Prairie Schooner, Seneca Review, Crazy Horse, and the anthology we've mentioned several times, The Wind Shifts, New Latino Poetry. She received an Academy of American Poets Prize, the Robert Chasen Poetry Prize, the Corson Bishop Poetry Prize, and the 2006 Breadloaf Merrill Mickjen Fellowship in Poetry. The holder of a Cornell MFA and a PhD candidate there as well, she divides her time between Galesburg, Illinois, where she's an assistant professor of English and creative writing at Knox College and the Arizona desert where she grew up. Please welcome Gina Franco. You want real? Draw your thumbs along the backbones of fossilized fish and press your fingers into the brush of vertebrae, the singular eyes, fronds of fins. See? Self-portrait. Osteichthys fanned in accuracy, bone hollows that are you exactly, you perpetually, you who thought yourself detached from sand, salt, and cannibal rage. Now sit outside this tank. Want in? Want to be sleek? Too bad. But imagine being made that way. Who's real, you think, wouldn't relent before fish mouths? The O, oh, a cavernous word out of the belly where God is mean and fresh. Two. A fish? An angel on the sill? But what if you accidentally knock it over? Is that okay with you? Water slopped from the bowl through to the sheets where deeply you were flying in your dreams, the dead glass flopping around your head. The whole thing reeks of disappointment, and this line of thinking only gets you hung up on quiet, peace and quiet. That's you, resistant to change, though sometimes you're God and sometimes you're seafood, fresh out of water, breathing your big let down, shocked to see what you've made. Three, bagged, fell for it again, 
You look to feed off something and snag, it's eating you. Say something, won't you? True, something like utterance has you hooked. The gaff's old motion was to blame. Your little ocean heaves forth like a heart bursting with insight. And while you want insensible to be surprised, you think flies, it surely flies, neglecting that it seems, only seems that I am I, or that the wings of everything are mid-flight. Here, after the piercing, comes a still small voice drying over the rocks where we came up once before and found us and turned back too late. That's a poem called Fishing. I just want to say thank you. I, I, I mean, this is a, a wow and a thank you. I'm really honored to be reading with um, this wonderful group. And thank you especially to Francisco for setting this up and for always thinking of us, and to Stephen Young for all his help. Everything goes down a changeling. A great cloud of tiny insects Ingenious, the summer light sifted through all those wings like that, like a thought shifting over the bog veined in bright water. The air was coming down with an imminent rain. I could feel it. And you were there, shaking your head, smiling at the camera, though I felt slighted. Everything goes down a changeling, you said. You've got to have it how you can. So it was hopeless already when I noticed that my legs were running with blood, with mosquitoes thickly drowning, when you turned from me saying, well, it's what you wanted. This is a, a response to the Keats poem, um, the Nightingale poem, uh, and he uses the word darkling and someone once told me, one of my professors once told me that it was the only place in, in English literature where the word darkling appears, and I uh, found it in Milton, and so thought, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna use it again, so. Darkling. It happened gradually. My hands, always behind me, sore from picking at ropes, went first. They began to feel light and hollow, though something prickled beneath the skin. My fingers closed and fused. My arms grew narrow and long until they were twice the length of my body. Then my heart. It erased ahead of me and tried to thrash its way out. Philomel, Philomel. I listened, afraid to speak. I thought the hush could do me no harm, but in silence my tongue was severed. I'd watched it writhe on the ground in front of me, murmuring, dividing, becoming forked before it slithered off. When feathers finally appeared in patches, I saw that you can live mute and still with a sharp desire for your father's country, which is power. Or you can deny your name until it feels like strength and give away all but your scarlet hair, for it might bring recognition when you feel murderous, waiting, impatient to do nothing, turning away from a spindly light that burns your eyes. You sleep all day, wake fitfully in the evening, dream of a lover as gentle as your father. Out of any long-chosen habit, you will be transformed if you are living in want. 
He will leave again, and he will return. Of course he will. He will leave, brandishing his coiled weapon that makes you convulse with longing to sing. I'm going to read from New Work. I like the book, but my head's, my head's with this right now. So this, this work was inspired by um, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which is a Gnostic gospel. And in it, she relates to the apostles the story of the journey of the soul. And she relates it as though it was what Jesus told her before he took off, before he went back up to heaven. And uh, Peter gets a little hot-headed, and he says, why would the master tell you these things and not tell us, you, a woman? Right? That's a good question. So I appropriated the story of the soul, and, and uh, this is a little allegory of the soul. It's called The Accidental. The epigraph is from Thomas Aquinas. The end of a thing is the term of its appetite. And when the soul had seen the father in the yard with his water hose spraying the widows from the eaves, it paused to smell the water warming on the smooth cement, for it was summer and night, and in the porch light the widows legged their shadows into the rough shingles of the house where the water formed droplets and the eaves dripped with light. The soul breathed in and filled itself with the father's water and the father's widows and tied itself off with a tether as the hose ran from the spigot into the father's hand and poured itself into the widow's corners and into the ear holes and the cement exhaling their pockets of air. And it yanked and rankled where its skin puckered closed at the end of its line. And it filled with the father and grew taut and thin-skinned until it developed a luster, a smooth reflecting sheen just apparent in the porch light among the widows spindling in the shadows and the droplets falling from the shingles, and the moths pressed flat against the fixtures. Thus it attached itself to its reflection, so to remain visible. So though the soul could not see itself, it thought of itself in sight. It thought of itself thinking itself into dream, and dreamed itself am. But the thought of the sight of itself in daylight made it ache with doubt, for it was dark. Inside and out, what it was was obscure. So it opened a hole in its garment and found skin. It opened a hole in its skin and found lips at the mouth of it. It opened its lips. It heaved a plain saline bile into the sod at its feet and trembled, for there was pain, revulsion, a shock of sun caught in the strings of clear mucus that hung between blades of grass in gorgeous syncretic arcs, which the soul then admired as its own work, until the wind lit through the blades and spattered the ants roiling at the roots. The green spring wept out of it, the sun's darting glance through the wound's lips and the skin went out of it. It wept itself inside out, and the soul saw that it saw through the wound. And when the father's pickup steered into the dust pile and began to disappear, the soul, losing heart, followed after. 
They trailed the riverbed to where the father pulled driftwood knots from a bend in the banks of dry sand. A marionette, a paintbrush holder, a snake in a nest of birds, a harmonica for Christopher, the father making discoveries, his eyes in the torques of wood, his hands testing for brittleness and rot where the nails would fail, and the soul pressed its lips into the hollows, feeling itself warm there like a flame in the grain. It pined into the loose bark which the father stripped from the joints and fed to the braised fish on his kindling fire. It writhed in the blaze with the figure of a four-sided man, which the father later carved up from memory according to the beauty of a four-sided man, and which he held up to scrutiny under the lamps of his workbench at home. One more. As it happens, the father went missing, the soul turning its wound to where the fire was no longer visible, the soul turning inward, wanting. Thus, when loneliness took root, it grew limbs. It grew a tensile, nervous lattice of branches racing into the cavity at the center of its head, under its skin, into its cranium and eyes, so that through the brambles shuddering in its crown, the soul saw something of itself with its own eyes turned inward, eyes for the picking clustered like blackberries. And as the soul's eyes filled with lust for more visions, more eyes plumped into being. A mass of capillaries seized in the mouth of the question, cutting teeth in all the mouths at the heart of it, and every one had a sound for what it closed on, a uniform, though incredulous sound, here I am. It was the sound of a feast, and am myself enough. Startled aloud, the owls rose up from their spindles on the crags with wings and a furl of calls. The soul plucked more pulp from the thorns through the brambles and brought it witting to its mouth. I am who, that's who. Thank you. You've been listening to Gina Franco. She and Blas Falconer were two of the four Latino poets speaking at the Art Institute of Chicago on January 24, 2008. The first two poets appearing on this program were Francisco Aragon and Brenda Cardenas. You can hear them on the previous Poetry Lectures podcast. This program was part of American Perspectives, a collaboration of the Art Institute, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and the Poetry Foundation. You can read more about Blas Falconer and Gina Franco and a selection of their poems at poetryfoundation.org. Also at the Poetry Foundation website, you'll find articles by and about poets, an online archive of more than 10,000 poems, the Poetry Learning Lab, the Harriet blog about poetry, the complete back issues of Poetry Magazine, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.